Some of you will be familiar with the name of Horatio Spafford. Spafford was an attorney in Chicago, a man of some prominence. Through real estate investments, he'd accumulated a small fortune. He was married with five small children, and he was an elder in his local Presbyterian church. His only son, named after him, died of scarlet fever in 1870, and he lost most of his fortune in the space of a little over 24 hours in the Great Chicago Fire in October of 1871. He was a friend of the evangelist D.L. Moody, and when Moody was getting ready to have meetings in Europe in 1873, Spafford decided to take his family to assist. Business delayed him at the last minute, so he decided to send his wife and four daughters, ages 11, 9, 5, and 2, on ahead and he would catch up. Their ship, the Ville du Havre, collided with another ship at sea and sank in less than 12 minutes. Spafford would receive a telegram some days later from his wife, saved alone. He got the next ship to go to England where she had been taken. And he was notified by the captain as they sailed over the watery grave of his four daughters. In transit, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. There's two verses that aren't in the hymnal. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, <clears throat> not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the sky be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, 
a song in the night, O my soul. That poem was set to music by Philip Bliss, who was another friend of Moody's. It's number 493 in our hymnal. If you look down at the bottom right-hand corner of that page, you'll find that Bliss named the tune Ville du Havre, the name of the ship on which those kids perished. The fact is, many of our most loved hymns are born out of great sorrow and great suffering. We live in a fallen world, and pain and suffering are no strangers to man, and they're certainly no strangers to believers. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, on the night he was betrayed that we're going to celebrate today. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I've overcome the world. You have tribulation as a present active indicative, meaning that the disciples had tribulation then and it would be ongoing. And if they didn't think so at that moment, they were fixing to find out in a few hours when Jesus would be arrested and they would be scattered in fear. Sometime the reasons for suffering are evident. David suffered consequences from his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. He was not sentenced to death, although that sentence would have been just. But he suffered consequences nonetheless. Nathan the prophet was sent by God to accuse David. And the message from God was this. You'll find it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your own household. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. 
And in the coming years, when rape, murder, and rebellion occurred in David's home, he could tie those events directly back to his punishment for his own sin. But a lot of suffering cannot be tied back to judgment. We're going to look at th this morning at suffering through the eyes of three men. Three men whose responses to their suffering share a common theme, at least in the end. Humility. The title of this morning's message is Humility Through Suffering. And we will begin with Job. So please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east." Now, Job lived after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, in a time when wealth was measured by flocks and herds and children. He demonstrated his dedication to God by sacrificing on behalf of his kids, just in case they had cursed God in their hearts. Satan comes to appear before God, and God holds Job out as a faithful man. Verse 6 have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Satan knew about Job. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Now there's a play on a Hebrew word here because the Hebrew word for bless is the same word as the word for curse. And so Satan's base, his thrust is, you've blessed him, you've protected him, you've given him every reason to trust you, every reason to obey you. But if you were to take that away, and you're not his sugar daddy anymore, he'll curse you to your face. He won't bless, he'll curse. He won't ascribe value to you, he'll ascribe worthlessness to you. If God flips the switch from affluence to affliction, Job will flip the switch from blessing to cursing. And in verse 12, God gives Satan permission to afflict Job, but sets a limit that Job, that Satan cannot touch Job's body. Now, you and I have got the first 12 verses of chapter one. 
Job doesn't have that. Job has no idea of what's happening in heaven. Job's first inkling that anything is going on happens in verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I have alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. His fortune, gone. His kids, gone. In less time than it took me to read it. Job's immediate response is in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Shaving his head, tearing his robe, those were signs of grief, public demonstrations of sorrow. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't curse God, as was the intent from the one who attacked him. Notice here that sin and blame are used as synonyms for cursing. Hold on to that for later. Round two begins in chapter two. Some time evidently passes and Satan again comes to appear before God. In verse three, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. 
only spare his life. And so again, God offered Job up. And God sets limits. He sets parameters on what Satan will be allowed to do. And so Satan strikes Job with painful boils, literally from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And Job sits down in an ash heap to scrape his boils with a piece of broken pottery. Now again, sitting down in an ash heap, that's another sign, that's another uh, way of proclaiming misery and sorrow. Job's wife has come to the end of her rope. She says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so up till now, what has Job's response been to God in the blind? He, again, he doesn't know about the conversations that God has had with Satan. What is his attitude toward God? He's trusting him. His faith, solid. His attitude, right. And now things are really going to get hard for Job because his three friends are going to show up to comfort him. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights and don't say a word because they can see his grief is so great. And then unfortunately, they started talking. And their stance is not unusual. They see that where Job has been and they see where Job is now and in their theology, the only way that this works from being prosperous, from being blessed, to being destitute and being cursed is Job must have sinned and it must have been a doozy. And so they spend, you have this discourse back and forth. One at a time, they take their shots and Job has a rebuttal for each of these, and this goes on for most of the book. It's like in John chapter 9, right? Jesus and the disciples come across a man blind from birth, and the disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? I guess they believed in preemptive judgment. This guy was going to sin so badly in his life that God cursed him at birth. That's their thinking. What was Jesus' reply? It is not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God made this man blind from birth for years. Everybody in the neighborhood knew him because he sat at a particular place. So they all knew him. It was so that one day he would meet Jesus 
and he would be healed. He doesn't know that. He's not guilty of sin. That's not why he was born blind. And Job was being falsely accused by his friends. Job hasn't, been, Job hasn't had all of these things happen to him because of sin. It's not judgment. They don't get that. And the problem for Job is that as time goes on and he keeps getting beat on by his friends, Job starts to shift. And he starts to defend himself. And it morphs because by the time we get to chapter 32, we see that he's come to be righteous in his own eyes. And he's justifying himself before God. In fact, he demands that he be able to have a court date with God so he can justify himself. And God does give him an audience. But Job's not the one asking questions. God's asking the questions. So chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, question number one, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That would be called a shot across the bow. Job, you have no clue what you're talking about. And he's going to go in now for two chapters and he's going to talk about creation. And he takes Job to, Job, were you around when I set the foundation for the earth? Were you there? Who enclosed the sea with doors? Who placed boundaries for the sea? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Job, have you made a sunrise lately? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 19, Job, do you know where light comes from? God even gets a little sarcastic. Verse 21, you know for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Verse 22, how about the storehouses of snow and the storehouses of the hail? Where are those? Job, do you control the rain? How about lightning and thunder? How about the stars, Job? Did you hang any of them in place? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens are fixed their rule over the earth? You know, we're still working on that one. Can you control the clouds? How about the animals, Job? Can you provide prey for the lion? Can you satisfy the hunger 
of the wild animal? How about the animals out in the wilderness? Do you know how the mountain goats foal? Who sent out the wild donkey free? Will the wild ox consent to serve you or will he spend the night at your manger? He speaks of the ostrich. He speaks of the horse. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Just one by one, going through all the creation. Job, you're not powerful. I am. You're not that knowledgeable. I am. You don't control anything. You can't even control what's happening to you. I can. And then he ends this session with this question. Chapter 40, verse 2. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Ouch. One who's been held out as righteous and upright. Now, he's the fault finder. How do you find fault in one who's perfect? You can't rightly because God's perfect. So when Job is finding fault, what is he doing? He's finding fault with God because God's not acting in a way that Job thinks is right, that Job thinks is proper. So let him who reproves God answer it. Now Job realizes that he's been rebuked but he doesn't realize it enough because his response is this. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm going to shut up, but I'm not going to change the way I think. And God says that's not good enough. Verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you might be justified? Job, you're setting yourself up as my judge. You're setting yourself up to be one who I answer to. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And so, God goes back and he talks about some dinosaurs. Joe, can you control the behemoth? How about Leviathan? In fact, at the end of chapter 41, he refers to Leviathan this way. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And Job finally gets it. Chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. 
I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I have spoken wrongly. I have thought of you wrongly. I have understood you wrongly. I retract those things. And I am going to, in fact, mourn over my sin in the same fashion that I mourned over my boils. I'm going to have the same level of sorrow over how I have treated you as I did in my suffering with the boils. And that's what God was after with him. Job humbled himself. He had been standing in judgment over God. And now he steps under and says, I realize you're God, I'm not. You're right, I'm wrong. I need to come under you. I need to come in line with your thinking. I need to come in line with what it is that you're doing. And what does God do for Job? He gives him grace. Job was proud. And what was God's response to Job when he was proud? He opposed him. He resisted him. When Job humbles himself, God gives him grace. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, why spend so much time with Job? Because frankly, Job is mostly where we end up. I wish that I had the reputation with God of being a righteous and an upright man who worships God and turns away from evil consistently, consistently, consistently. The way that I'm like Job and the way that you're most like Job is that most of the time when we're suffering, when something comes along that we, that is painful, we don't know why it's there specifically. We're gonna understand some principles today and next Sunday. We'll have some principles that'll deal with that. But the fact of the matter is, we're not going to know the specifics. I'm looking around the room right now, and I can see various people. And as I look at you, I think of trials that have come your way. We're not going to know until we get to heaven the full details of all of those. We won't. There's no record in Job that God ever explained to Job. Hey, by the way, this is what was going on. There's no record of that. God doesn't have to explain himself. He does not owe us an explanation because he's God and we're not. By the way, Job's three friends got humbled too. What did God say to them? He said to Eliphaz, you and your buddies 
have not spoken rightly about me as you ought to. So, you come up with seven bulls and seven rams, and you take them to Job, and you ask Job to pray for you, because I'll hear him. So he humbles the friends. And by the way, Job demonstrates his humility again, because what does he do with his friends? He forgives them. He gives up his right of revenge or vengeance, and he prays for them. And God restored his fortune when he prayed for his friends. Job comes to the point where he realizes he's not God. He doesn't have God's knowledge, his wisdom, his strength, or his power. And so God gave him grace when he humbled himself. Our second man is going to be the Apostle Paul. So push forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 obviously follows chapter 11. And in chapter 11, Paul has gone through this long laundry list of the things that he has suffered for the cause of Christ. So when you come to chapter 12, Paul is going to talk about something that is a rather unique event. Verses 1 to 6, Paul relays that he got to go to heaven. He got to go to the third heaven. Now, the first heaven was the sky. Second heaven was space. Third heaven, that's the presence of God. Paul gets to go up into the presence of God, and he hears things it's not lawful for a man to speak of. It's worse than if I told you I'd have to kill you. And so, because he's had this incredible experience, God gives him a preventative measure to keep him from exalting himself. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul knows exactly why this thorn is there. Now, it's to keep him from exalting himself. So I would ask you, is that for his benefit? Yes, it is. It's for his benefit. It's to keep him humble. It's to keep him from having his head blow up. Because, let's face it, there's probably fewer people who have been taken into God's presence in the heavens and come back to earth and there have walked on the moon. That is rarefied air. Very select company. Yet, how does Paul view the thorn? Verse 8, concerning this, concerning the thorn, I implored, I begged the Lord three times that it might leave me. So how does Paul view this thorn? Does he view it positively or negatively? 
views it negatively. This is something that's bad. This is something to be avoided. This is something to be freed from, to be relieved from, to be released from. And God answers him. Now remember, Paul's living in that time when he's getting direct revelation from God. And God gives him some. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now when God says, my grace is sufficient to you, what passage do you think goes through Paul's mind? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now you say, that's nice. How do you come up with that? Because look at Paul's response to what God tells him. Paul's response is, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You say, so, how do you, so how's Paul changed his thinking? You're going to see it in two places. Number one, most gladly. Paul has been wanting to get rid of this thorn. Now he embraces it. And in fact, the word here, therefore I am well content in verse 10, is the exact word that is used by God at Jesus' baptism when he says this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Same word. It's the idea, this is one in whom I take delight. Paul now looks at, he's changed his view from this is something to be avoided, this is something to be disposed of, to be gotten rid of, to this is something I'm hugging, I'm embracing. I need this. Because with this comes God's grace. And I need God's grace. He changes his view. He humbles himself. What does it mean to humble yourself? It means to voluntarily place yourself under. That's what Paul chooses to do here. He places himself under the will of God. Resisting the thorn was an expression of pride. Paul knew better than God. And so God should come around to his way of thinking, at least at that moment. He was asserting his will and his desires over God's. And so embracing the thorn was an expression of humility coming under God's will, submission. Which is going to bring us to the ultimate example of submission and humility, the Lord Jesus. So flip some pages over to Hebrews chapter 5.
The first part of the chapter is talking about how Christ is being called as a high priest. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death or out of death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was the God-man, fully God, fully divine, and yet also fully human. Now this word piety at the end of verse 7 means reverent submission. And Jesus' life is characterized by reverent submission. In Luke 2.51, speaking of Jesus after staying behind in Jerusalem after the Passover feast, he was 12 years old at the time, says that Jesus went back to Nazareth and continued in subjection to Joseph and Mary. As the Son of God, he was always in submission to the Father. As a man, he had to learn submission to God and to those in authority. Jesus lived a life of obligation. In the book of Luke, 10 times Jesus speaks of obligation. Luke 2:49. If you're taking notes, just write the references down. And he said to them, "Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house?" Luke 4:43. But he said to them, "I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose." Luke 9:22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Luke 17, 25. But first, he, I, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 19.5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Luke 22.37, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me had its fulfillment. Luke 24.7, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Luke 24, 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus not only lived a life of obligation, he lived a life of obedience, Luke records on several occasions that Jesus was filled with the Spirit, that he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that filling 
was complete submission to God the Father. After his baptism, Jesus, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on him, right? And after the baptism, in all three of the synoptics, Jesus is led away from the Jordan immediately into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil. While he's in the the wilderness being tempted, one of the temptations is command these stones. Remember now, he's being tempted for 40 days. He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. And after 40 days, he gets hungry and Satan hits him with this one. Why don't you command these stones to be made bread? Now, is that in Jesus' power? Absolutely. We know that from the loaves and the fishes, right? It's in his power. The temptation is, Jesus, will you use your divine power to satisfy a human desire? And Jesus is having nothing of it. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out from the mouth of God. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use a power because I have it just to satisfy a need that I might have. Why not? Because my father knows what I have need of, and he'll provide it for me. He trusts his father completely. He lives a life full of obedience. John 4.34, my food, my sustenance, what energizes me is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so as a man, as, a, as, as God, as the son of God, he's completely submissive to the father, right? I'm here to do the works of him who sent me. As a human, Jesus has to learn how to subjugate his desires as a man, his, his, his fleshly desires. And I don't mean flesh in the, in the sense of, of of us having a sin nature because he didn't have one. But he still got hungry. He got tired. He suffered all of of the privations of having a human body that we do. And he has to learn how to subjugate those desires to the will of God. And the the ultimate demonstration of that's in the garden, right? Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That his life is characterized by that. Dave, the last several weeks, has been talking about the sign gifts in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians. And it's just interesting that in our culture today, when you have somebody talk about being filled with the Spirit, it's something that is kind of, it's almost outlandish. Something unusual is going to happen. Yet who was consistently dominated by the Spirit? Jesus was. Was Jesus weird? Did he act in such a way that people looked at him and said, that dude's from another planet. There's something different about him, and they weren't saying it in a respectful way. He wasn't like that. Not at all. He didn't do things for show. Jesus healed probably thousands of people over the course of his ministry. What did he tell almost every single one of them? Don't tell anybody. Was Jesus out for attention? No. Otherwise, hey, 
Spread the news. Tell your friends. That's not what he was after. Jesus, day by day and moment by moment, submitted his human will to God's divine will. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So his life of constant and consistent obedience constituted the piety that caused God to hear his prayers on the cross and raise him from the dead. Death had no hold on him. The plea was not to save him from death. The plea, I mean, why had Jesus come? He'd come to die. So he doesn't want to be saved from that. He wants to be saved out of death, to bring him back to life that he might ultimately reign over the earth as the last Adam. And his submission and his substitution make him the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, those who believe in him in the biblical sense, belief that, is, that results in action. Now, Jesus didn't suffer because he was, he was guilty of some sin. He suffered so that he would be able to come to the aid of those who suffer. He suffered so that he would be a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, that he would understand our infirmities and our weaknesses. What a Savior. Our time is short, and so I want to focus just on one thing here. It has become almost chic when suffering to have the idea that somehow someone can be angry with God. Have you heard people say that? I'm angry with God. I'm mad at him. He's done something that it's just not right. It ought not be this way. I hear Christians say that. That is foolishness. It is sin. It is wicked. Why? Because somehow one who holds that view is standing in judgment of God. They're not coming under God. They are standing in opposition to him. What can they expect? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We'll develop more application next week. Dear one, I know that many of you are suffering in one way, shape, or form. For some of you, it's health. For some of you, it's relationships. For some of you, it's work. I 
I look at you young moms. I remember my Carolyn when our kids were young and she was being pulled about 15 different directions pretty much all the time, all day, every day. Many of you are suffering. Humble yourself. What God, God has brought whatever it is in your life, God's brought it. And that is true across the board, by the way. That's true if it's judgment for sin. That's true if it is for refinement. That's true if it is simply for transforming you into the image of Christ. God's brought it. He's behind it. He's up to something. He's up to something good. It's for your benefit, not for your harm. Does he need to maybe break you of some things? He might. He needed to with Job. He needed to with Paul. And yet, when they chose to see God's hand and to submit their will to his, then they found grace to help in time of need. And they had the grace that was sufficient. And not just to skinny by by the skin of your teeth, but to overwhelmingly conquer. If you're suffering today, submit yourself to God. Don't stand in judgment over him. Don't tell him that if he was really wise, if he was really good, if he was really smart, he'd come around to your way of thinking. He'd come around to your sense of timing. Don't do that. Jesus, when he was reviled, didn't revile again. But what did he do? He consistently came under the will of the Father. He consistently looked to God, knowing that God would ultimately justify him. God would ultimately vindicate him. He kept entrusting himself to the Father. And that is what we need to do. We're coming to the table here. This table represents the submission, the humbling of the Lord Jesus. He was God in every way, sense, and shape, and form. And yet he set that aside to take on flesh like you and me so that he could live like we do and be tempted in every way such as we are yet without sin. To die a death that he didn't know. To pay a price we couldn't pay. To redeem for himself a people. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, that people is you. It's us. Father, how often we have been guilty of judging you, of judging your ways. Presuming upon you to, to tell you what would really be a good idea 
in any given situation. And Father, thank you that in spite of that, you've sent your son. You've redeemed us. You've bought us off of the slave market and made us your own. And Lord Jesus, what can we say to you but thank you? And how would we ever get over the idea that now, instead of being enemies, we're not only children, we're heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. He rightly deserves it, we don't. And yet, Father, you've made us to where we share in his inheritance. How gracious you've been. Father, help us to, to be humble people. That we would live under your rule happily. That we would willingly and joyfully accept your, your orders for us. That we would demonstrate a family resemblance with the Lord Jesus that just as he was a man of obligation and a man of obedience, that we would be the same. Holy Spirit, help to convict us when we stray from that path. Work in our hearts that we would be able to, to recognize it quickly and turn quickly. That we may live for you, that we may proclaim your excellencies. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.